So welcome back to the Weirdest Thing Podcast. I am your host, Scotty Milder. Yes, and I am your other host, Amelia Ampuero. And we're excited uh, to be here with you today. We're still celebrating spooky season. Yeah, it's November 6th, but fuck it. We're, 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 keeping, we're keeping it scary. So. Look, midterms are two days away. <laughs> that is terrifying in and of itself. So, you know, we're going to keep this going uh, yeah. until the horrors of the real world are bearable. Right. So really for the, for the unforeseeable future. Yes. It's, it's now <laughs> land. It is now a realm of eternal spooky season. <laughs> Basically you can just start calling this podcast lore or lore part two <laughs> as we get sued by that guy. Yeah. They're um, like, please don't no, do that. Yeah. Don't do that. Um, well, I think you're going first this week. I am going first and I'm going to start off my story with a TripAdvisor review. Okay, perfect. Mm -hmm. This is from September 10th, 2014. Title of the review is, Oh, it's haunted. (laughs) (laughs) And the review says the following. Hotel is unique and the price is right for business travel. Service is great. Everyone is super professional. Location perfect for business right in LA. Room has been updated. No complaints, but it is haunted. (laughs) And that's all it says. Uh, I'm going to give you a little tour of haunted Hollywood hotels this week. Perfect. Sources for this are TripAdvisor, (laughs) Forbes, Curved LA, the book that I mentioned in the last episode, titled Ghostland, An American History and Haunted Places by Colin Dickey, The Castle on Sunset by Sean Levy, The Hollywood Reporter, The Travel Channel, LA Weekly, and a shit ton of sketchy ass ghost hunting blogs. Nice. So I'm going to begin, uh, I'm going to, my second beginning for this story is a quote. And it says, quote, ours is a forward looking country that can have trouble sometimes reckoning with the past and actions of our ancestors. And the spirit world has become yet another arena in which the shameful chapter in America's history, including slavery and the genocide of the American Indians are addressed and relitigated. Uncomfortable truths, buried secrets, disputed accounts, ghost stories arise out of the shadow lands, a response to the ambiguous and the poorly understood. And Mm. that is from Ghostland, an American Mm. history in haunted places. So why the hell is LA so haunted? (laughs) And I mean, and it it, like you having lived there and spent a lot of time there, you can just drive around that city and it just feels haunted. Like you just feel it. Yeah, it is haunted AF. And it's interesting because like it's not the oldest city in the US. It, you know, wasn't the site of stuff like Gettysburg or Antietam. It didn't witness the atrocities of slavery like Shaco Bottom in Virginia or New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, So why is everywhere in LA haunted? Lisa Strauss, who is a founding member of Ghost Hunters of Urban Los Angeles or Gula for short. (laughs) Perfect. Mm -hmm. Posits that LA's abundance of ghosts comes from the fact that LA is, as you and I have talked about, a quote, violent, exploitive place. 
LA is really effed up. So we technically should have more ghosts. <laughs> um, not only is the city haunted by the very busy ghosts of Marilyn Monroe, Rudolph Valentino, and Elvis Presley, it's also home to the ghosts of so many who became famous because of the way that they died. Mm-hmm. Aspiring actresses like Elizabeth Short and Peg Entwistle, and even, is it Elisa or Elisa Lamb? I think it's Elisa, but I'm not sure. Who was found in the water tank at the Cecil Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, like people like them became more famous in death than they could have ever have hoped to have been in life. Yeah. In his book, Ghostland, Colin Dickey says, quote, many times a ghost story is simply an attempt to account for some scattered tidbits, some disconnected facts that don't add up. We tell spooky tales and scary stories because the alternative, the open-ended chaos of the unknown is even more terrifying. That's why ghosts cling to Hollywood, why they whisper underfoot. Mm. And to pull from a topic uh, from a recent episode, Barton Fink, Mm. so many of the people who came to LA for the glamour and the chance to become rich and famous never quite figured out if they were trans or res. Mm. Yeah. So instead of just focusing on one hotel, like I have in other stories, we're just going to take a brief tour of Hollywood's haunted hotels and some other spooky locations just for good measure. Cool. Our tour is going to start at the Roosevelt Hotel. This hotel is still standing. It's nearly a hundred years old. It is the oldest continually running hotel in Los Angeles. Mm. And it opened on May 15th, 1927. And the reason for that is there are other places that have been hotels and then they became apartments right. and they were hotels again. And that, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. The Roosevelt has been a hotel since it started. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Roosevelt hotel really like equals Hollywood. It was financed by a group of people that included Louis B. Mayer, Mary Pickford, Mm. Douglas Fairbanks, and Sid Grauman. It's like all the names. Yeah. Yeah, It was home to the very first Academy Awards on May 16th, 1929. Fun trivia about the Oscars. They were not the Oscars yet. And that would come a few years later. And apparently like the awards had been announced in February of that year, but then Mm. they like, were like, maybe we should hold a ceremony. And so then they did that months later in May. The Oscars is a, that's a whole interest. That might be an episode in and of itself. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some Roosevelt ghosties. Clearly always because she's everywhere. Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. haunts the Roosevelt Hotel. She actually lived at the Roosevelt for about two years at the beginning of her career. And her first print ad was photographed at the pool of the Roosevelt. She's like posed on the diving board. It was a toothpaste ad. Um, oh, I think I've seen that picture. Mm-hmm. And she is said to haunt her old room, which is room 1200 and her old mirror. Apparently the Roosevelt Hotel had given, had like provided her with this dark wood framed full length mirror that she had mm. in her room there. And after her death, the mirror was moved into the manager's office and staff would frequently report seeing the reflection of a sad looking Marilyn in the mirror, mm. which is so different from the Knickerbocker, right? Because of course right. she also, she also haunts there as I covered in our uh, monster machine episode last year. Right. Um, and she's like in the bathroom, right? And they can see her like applying her lipstick and stuff. She apparently yeah. also, haunts her home you know where she lived where she died and the carousel at the santa monica pier but she haunts the mirrors at the santa monica at the carousel at the santa monica Ooh, pier. so she's she's like caught in mirrors somehow yeah there's something about and somebody had posited somewhere that like you know like she can't stop looking at herself oh man that's like that would be a good movie someone should make that movie i should okay. make that movie tm hashtag <laughs> trademarked um <laughs> 
Okay. So she's probably the most, uh, like the biggest paranormal feather in the Roosevelt's. Uh, The second one would be Montgomery Clift. So I did not Mm. go into a lot of background info on Marilyn Monroe, because I'm assuming that everyone knows who Marilyn Monroe is. Right. If you don't, I guess like go listen to any one of the hundreds of podcasts that there are about Marilyn Monroe um, Mm -hmm. or books or whatever. But at any rate, I am going to give a little bit of information about Montgomery Clift because I don't know how well known he is with people younger than us, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, So Montgomery Cliff, you should go take a minute to go look him up. But in a nutshell, he was one of the three original Hollywood method actors alongside James Dean and Marlon Brando. Right. He got into, I'm sure Scotty, this is all review for you, but he got into a terrible car accident the evening of May 12th, 1956, which broke like almost every bone in his face. Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. It was, it was awful. And he, he had been leaving a dinner party at Elizabeth Taylor's house. Mm. And then another guest who was on like Clift was leaving and another actor was coming and saw the crash and was like, Oh my God. And I don't know this person called Elizabeth Taylor or got to the house and was like, Montgomery's been in a terrible accident. And Elizabeth went and she was like, like with him. It said that like she pulled a tooth out of his tongue. Like his face was, and he was like shoved under the dashboard of the car. It was bad. It was really, really bad. Thing is, is that he survived this crash and he underwent extensive plastic surgery, which was like really, really top notch for the time. Mm -hmm. But his face was like, it had gotten fucked in this car accident. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though the plastic surgery was very, very good, he still looked different. And if anybody is curious. Bad, but he definitely looked different. But it is, I remember, I think, listening to an episode of You Must Remember This, where she talks about it. And it is, it's like, you look at him and it's almost a little bit like you're looking at him through like a funhouse mirror. Yeah, it's it's a little uncanny valley. Just a little off you can google montgomery cliff before and after pictures and you'll see it's like he isn't disfigured but you're just like yeah there's something mm-hmm. off yeah that of course probably did not do wonders for his mental health he also had pain from the accident and other conditions mm-hmm. um which he used pills and alcohol to self-medicate and the second half of his career has been referred to as the longest suicide in Hollywood history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like yeah, the he's... saddest thing I've ever heard. Oh, he, his, his whole story is really sad. I it mean, really, because he really should be like spoke. I mean, he was a great actor. If you've ever seen him in stuff, like mm-hmm. he, he really should be spoken in the same breath as like James Dean and Marlon Brando. But wasn't he in that movie that I covered? It was a movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Du, not Shelley Duvall, Shelley uh, Winters. Winters. I've got his, I was just looking up his. Okay. I do not see that on his list of. I think because I think that's where, and it's the story that I covered about the couple who like went out on the lake and she was, she was like allegedly pregnant and it was that story. I think he's in that movie. And why do I want to call it an affair to remember, but that's not it, is it? Mm, I don't think Uh, from here to eternity. Is that what you're? No, because from here to eternity is a different movie. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're, we're yeah. gonna fact check this, Scotty. See if you can find it as I continue my story. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got like an incomplete filmography open. Let me just go to IMDb. 
Okay. So like I said, the second half of his career has been referred to as the longest suicide in Hollywood history. And he finally passed away in New York City on July 23rd, 1966. He was 45 years old. Mm-hmm. Clift is said to haunt the Roosevelt where he stayed in room 928 while he prepared for and filmed From Here to Eternity in which he played an army bugler. Mm. Nowadays, he spends his time tapping guests on the shoulder, watching the maids as they clean his room, <laughs> which is creepy. Personally, um, yeah. Turning the heat up or switching the lights on and off. And apparently he can also be heard mournfully playing his bugle in the halls of his floor. Mm. He does not seem to be a happy ghost. I um, wouldn't think so. So what, okay, so what did you think the name of the movie was? An Affair to Remember, but that can't be it. No, I mean, the only thing that's close to that is From Here to Eternity. Suddenly Last Summer. Not Suddenly Last Summer. Judgment of Nuremberg, The Defector. Hold on. Okay, play the, play the music here. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. A Place in the Sun. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Okay, that's what it was. That makes Um, sense. Okay. okay. Other ghosts at the Roosevelt include a young girl in a blue dress, two men in the Blossom Room, which is the room that they held the first Academy Awards. One man appears to be dressed in a tuxedo and the other is in a white suit. And employees and guests also report cold spots, glowing orbs that show up in photos, and mysterious calls to the hotel operator. Mm. The Alexandria. This hotel opened on February 2nd, 1906. The Alexandria was the most luxurious hotel in LA until the Biltmore opened in 1923. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Alexandria is now low-income apartments, but it originally hosted Presidents Taft, Roosevelt, and Wilson. Where is it located? Do you see where? Do you have an address? All of them were located. Almost all of these are located in downtown LA. Okay. Um, I know the Roosevelt's like Hollywood and Highland, um, but I don't remember some of the other ones. 210 West 5th Street. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll be like right downtown. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, the ghosties. When he is not hanging out at the Knickerbocker, Rudolph Valentino can be seen hanging out in his 12th floor room at the Alexandria. It is now, did I say that? Yes, it's now low-income apartments. Mm -hmm. This is creepy as fuck. An angry teenager is known to haunt what used to be Charlie Chaplin's room. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say anything like female. No details. No, just didn't. Angry teenager. The second floor is haunted by a handful of ballroom dancers. Hmm. Well, that's N- kind of fun. Yeah. And like then, maybe go to that room, not the angry teenager. Maybe, yeah, maybe spend time there. Uh, and then a ghostly Edwardian woman in a black dress is known to huh. haunt the hallways of the Alexandria alongside phantom waiters who show up in the Palm Court and a hmm. dapper man in 1920s garb who reads the newspaper in the penthouse. Oh, so wow. this is okay. the interesting thing about a lot of these, like, yes, Marilyn, Rudolph Valentino, like we have some very, very very busy ghosts in mm-hmm. Los Angeles that are showing up everywhere. They're doing their thing. They're hanging out. But what's also fascinating is there are so many of abstor- like this, where it's like, it's a little girl in a blue dress. 
Mm-hmm. It is a man in a tuxedo. Right. An Edwardian woman. Like, yeah. And there's and that, she must have been there from like when it was first built, because that's like yeah. five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing, is that like they're seen over and over and over again, but because they're not famous, nobody knows who they are. Yeah. The Chateau Marmont. Yep. Located on the corner of Sunset Boulevard in Marmont Lane, the Chateau Marmont opened up on February 1st, 1929. It was originally an apartment house. The book, The Castle on Sunset, is one of the very first books that I read at the very beginning of the pandemic when I was mm-hmm. starting to get into my weird LA fascination. Um, throughout its history, it has been both short and long-term residences, and it was known to be populated, to be, quote, populated by people all either on their way up or on their way down. (laughs) The Chateau was also home to many New York actors who were working in LA. So that's how you got like Robert De Niro and all of these people who were New York actors, but they would come to LA for projects or whatever. And they loved staying at the Chateau because it felt very New York to them. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It felt very like a New York high rise apartment. Right. So the Chateau Marmont is a collection of rooms, suites, cottages, and bungalows. Mm-hmm. And due to how the Chateau Marmont is situated, like the way it's sort of like built into this hill, it's got tall fences that also have like plants and stuff covering them. It became this like perfect hideaway for celebrities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's ru- it, apparently, I don't even know if I can say rumored, allegedly, Desi Arnaz would always stay at the Chateau Marmont when Lucy would kick him out for cheating. (laughs) Harry Cohn, who was head of Columbia at the time, told William Goldwyn and Glenn Ford, quote, if you must get into trouble, do it at the Chateau Marmont. (laughs) The hotel has thick walls, discreet entry, and a highly protective staff Mm. that added to why people were like, oh, you can go and get in trouble at the the Chateau. Yeah, they're not going to like call up fucking TMZ or whatever the equivalent would have been. Precisely. In fact, somewhat recently, I tweeted about a celebrity acting strangely at the hotel's restaurant. And the next time this woman called to make a reservation for the restaurant, she was informed that she had been banned. Mm, So they're still. They they take it very seriously there. Yeah. Yeah. There is something. Uh, It's funny. Like when you drive by that place, it's got a vibe of like, don't come in here. I've always kind of felt that. Whereas, like, the Beverly Hills Hotel yeah. is a little more inviting. Chateau Marmont, like, it really does look like this imposing Dracula's castle kind of place. Yeah. And apparently, like, I think Beyonce threw an Oscar party in the parking garage at the Marmont. Like, because <laughs> it's, you know, like, it's, it is. Exclusive. It, it is. Ex- and and they are very, like, they, they, that is what they are there to do. Mm-hmm. They are about being discreet. They are about not telling people what's going on. They're like all of that stuff. Right. Britney Spears was staying at the Chateau Marmont when she had her quote unquote meltdown, which we all oh, know that's right. what that was about. Now, uh, Lindsay Lohan right. was staying there when she went through her first DWI. Mm. She also has been banned from the Chateau Marmont for racking up a new toy notoriously high bill. Um, This is the funniest thing. I've read the book. They talk about it in the book and I've read other articles. She racked up a $46,000 bill on stuff like cigarettes, iPhone chargers, and copies of architectural digest. What the fuck? (laughs) I mean, what? 
Like if she was like throwing TVs out of a window or something, you see how you get there. But like architecture, iPhone chargers, do you? Yeah. <laughs> and what are like? She's like, give me antique copies of Architectural Digest. <laughs> she's like throwing a bread roll at people. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe because of how highly discretion was valued at the chateau, like the place saw a lot of weird shit, mm-hmm. uh, including but not limited to Howard Hughes apparently would spy on women at the pool mm-hmm. by using prism binoculars. Ooh fucking creep uh f scott fitzgerald was rumored to have suffered a heart attack there he actually didn't he actually had the heart attack across the street at schwab's drugstore Mm. because they're buying a pack of cigarettes but he was staying at the chateau marmont okay (laughs) i read a i read an article that was like while hollywood was trying to kill him (laughs) um james dean jumped through a window there to audition Mm. for rebel without a cause director nicholas ray was actually living at the chateau marmont while he was having and heavy, heavy air quotes around this word, an affair with 16-year-old Natalie Wood. Ooh, yeah. Uh, Led Zeppelin rode their motorcycles in the hallways. Yep, I know, knew that story. Yeah. It's fucking nuts. There's also <laughs> a story about Benicio del Toro and Scarlett Johansson, like maybe having made out in the elevator. Really? <laughs> yeah, but I think she was kind of young and he is older than her. And so it was mm. all a little weird. But then I think mm-hmm. at one point they were like, one of them came out and was like, we were being cheeky. Like nothing ever happened. Okay. I don't know. Now it doesn't seem like the Chateau has a, ton of ghosts but the one that it does have is its most notorious and that is john belushi yeah i was gonna say that's the one everyone knows Mm -hmm. john belushi was staying at the chateau marmont in the early 80s while he was writing and trying to make some deals for his next projects he was also heavily using drugs Mm -hmm. um his wife and dan Aykroyd were actually like trying desperately to get him back to new york Mm -hmm. because they felt that that would be better for him if Anybody wants to go and like look it up. There are a lot of accounts about the night, the 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 twenty four hours leading to John Belushi's death. They are quite sad. Yeah. Uh, but to give you a quick overview, he died of a speedball injection mm-hmm. on March fifth, nineteen eighty two, in Bungalow Number Three at the Chateau Marmont. That's where he was staying. There is a whole thing because you know. Because the chateau values discretion so much, like, yeah, yeah, like people who were staying next to him. Didn't. Robert De Niro was living in the hotel at the time and was like calling down and trying to get him and like couldn't get it's, it's mm. rough. But guests who have stayed in that bungalow after his death report feeling watched especially when they are looking in the bathroom mirror. Mm. And the most famous story of Belushi's haunting comes from a family that was staying in bungalow number three while their home was being renovated in 1999. Don't, don't spoil it. I'm not going to. No, I was going to say, I think you actually told me this story. Oh, fantastic. Um, Probably when Um, you were like hanging out at some point. I'm sure. I'm sure I did. Okay. So families living in bungalow three, 1999, while their home is being renovated, the family has a toddler Mm -hmm. who was often found laughing and giggling by himself and his parents would be like what are you laughing at and the little boy would always say the funny man and they were like Mm. okay weirdo and at some point during their stay there his mother was flipping through a book of celebrity guests of the chateau marmont and she flipped to a picture of john belushi and her son pointed at the picture and Mm. exclaimed the funny man (laughs) um but I guess it's nice that he's like, you know. Yeah, he's like entertaining kids and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I hope he's I hope he's doing well in the afterlife. Next, 
the Millennium Biltmore. This seems to be the most haunted hotel in Hollywood. It opened in 1923. It was the largest hotel west of Chicago. Mm. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was formed at the Biltmore during a luncheon in the Crystal Ballroom in 1927. Oh, wow. Okay. The Academy Awards were held at the Biltmore in 1931, 35 through 39, and 41 and 42. Okay. During World War II, the hotel became a rest and recreation facility for soldiers. Mm. Ghosts all over this fucking place. Um, there is a World War II era nurse who haunts the second floor. Okay. A creepy little girl on the ninth floor. And most terrifyingly, a boy with no face who haunts the roof. With no face? Yes. And, and like, I don't no know. More, <laughs> no more about that? Nope. <laughs> like, there's the kid with no face. Okay. And what I don't know is, like, gruesome no face, or he, like, has no face. Like, like a it's, blank. Yeah. Ooh, no mean, idea. Neither terrifying. one is good. Yeah. yeah, terrifying either way. Most famously is the ghost of a woman who on January 9th, 1947, entered the Biltmore. And depending on who you talk to, she either sat down at the bar or made a call from the lobby telephone. Her body was found on January 15th, bisected at the waist in a vacant lot by a woman who mm-hmm. thought the body was a mannequin. Yep. The murder of Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia, remains officially unsolved and is one of the most famous L.A cold cases and i would actually say probably one of the fam- most famous cold cases in this country yeah i mean not just la for sure no I mean, probably one of the fam- most famous in the world I, I mean i feel like it's so imprinted on me because that story is so terrifying i'm not going to get into the details of the black dahlia again dozens of podcasts have covered her death in much mm. better format than i would so please go listen to one of those but the book ghostland wonders why the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short, doesn't haunt the lot where she was found. Right. Or the place where she was murdered. And my thought is, like, maybe she does. Yeah. Like, maybe she is wandering around wherever. The lot, maybe not, because... I mean, she was clearly already dead by the time they got her. She was. She was. But, like, I don't know. If she, you know, there's a ton of theories about who is responsible for her death. Mm -hmm. And, like, maybe she does haunt one of those places. No, we just, we just haven't heard about it. Yeah. yeah. But back to the Biltmore, Elizabeth Short can frequently be seen haunting the lobby of the Biltmore, the first, 10th, and 11th floors, and the mezzanine. According hmm. to reports, people see her ghost dressed in her signature black dress, and when she is told to leave, she simply turns, walks into a wall, and disappears. Hmm. Poor thing. Lastly, in October 2010, a woman named Laura Finley fell down six stories in the stairwell at the Biltmore to her death. A few hours after her half-naked body was discovered, she was discovered only wearing pants and her pants were inside out. Hmm. So a few hours after her half-naked body was discovered, her husband auditioned in the lobby for the hosts of America's Got Talent. He later sued the hotel for wrongful death, saying that the hotel failed to secure the location from homeless people during a renovation. So he's saying it's murder? Yeah. Have they, do they agree with him or? 
This is the weird is it- thing is that the only thing I can find about it is cases is newspaper articles being like he's filed he's filed a suit. I couldn't find anything okay. after that. Mm, yeah, I mean, I I don't know if this is like fair or not, but for some reason I I feel real suspicious of the husband. It and seems weird. Additionally, weird. I think there was maybe like a TMZ article, so take this. Mm-hmm. with a whole bag of salt. But there was some article that was like, the husband said that he had taken ecstasy mm. and that he was asleep when the murder happened mm. or like when she died. And I did find a Reddit thread. So, okay, my sources. Okay, I should add that to the source. <laughs> like Reddit to the source. But I did find a Reddit thread where somebody was like, has anybody heard of the story? And somebody was like, homeboy was on ecstasy and was asleep. And yeah. then is like, I don't know what happened, but it was probably a robbery. From one of mm. these like transient people. Mm. Uh, it's a lot of stuff not adding up. And here's the thing, like say what you want about TMZ. I mean, they're, you know, scuzzy or whatever, but I think they're generally known to be fairly accurate. I don't think they make shit up. They just like stick their nose where it doesn't belong, you know? Yeah. So, so. I don't know. The whole thing, I am not saying that her husband yeah, murdered her. allegedly 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 don't i know i don't even know what to believe about that but the whole thing is fucking weird yeah that's real weird mm-hmm. there is also in every list that i read about haunted hollywoods and hotel there are mentions of hauntings at the hollywood tower a hotel a hotel mm. so haunted that it inspired disney's tower of terror ride. Mm. yeah okay but the thing is is that that's all I can find. Huh. It's a footnote in most articles about haunted LA hotels, but there isn't Weird. any more information. There's no information on like who's haunting it, what's there. Even like the ghostly blogs that I looked at were like, maybe it's the ghosts of mobsters. Maybe, but nobody's like, no, these are the ghosts. Interesting. Where is this hotel? I've never heard this of this. This is also really fucking hard to figure out because if you Google Hollywood Tower Hotel, what comes up is the tower of terror. So I kept seeing yeah, stuff that it was like five helpful. people died in an elevator. And I was like, Oh shit. And I was like, that's a fucking ride. Like, <laughs> it's like nobody's giving the right fucking information. Um, so hold on. I will look this up. And when you see it, you're like, Oh yeah, that's the fucking tower of terror hotel. Mm-hmm. But apparently the Hollywood tower hotel and the Biltmore and one other were the actual inspirations. Like the interior of the ride looks almost exactly like the interior of the Biltmore, I believe. Okay. Built in 1929. Happy residence for entertainment and employees for many years. Signed as inspiration Disney's Twilight Zone no Tower. Terror. Real life. Was in the historic register. 1988. Where is it? Uh, 6200 Franklin Avenue. Oh, that's like close to, I think that's close to where. Oh shit. Yeah. It's apartments now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I believe this is pretty close to where I used to live. Oh, really? Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Some ghostly odds and ends. These are places that like weren't hotels, but I think they're pretty cool hauntings anyways. Ozzie Nelson of Ozzie and Harriet fame, which I think you and I might be the last generation (laughs) of people who remember Ozzie and Harriet. I mean, I barely, I mean, I know the names. I I know know of it, but I don't think I ever saw the show. Um, But Ozzie Nelson of Ozzie and Harriet fame is apparently a pervy ghost who haunts his old house on Camino Palermo. Tenants... Mm -hmm 
uh, and homeowners report stories of faucets turning on and off by themselves. The TV's randomly changing channels until he finds reruns of his show Mm. and inappropriately touching a female homeowner. Mm. So dude, way to be a douche, even in death. (laughs) Peg Entwistle, who, if you don't know her story, uh, I'm going to give it to you again in a nutshell. She was an aspiring actress who was, was it The Women? I think that was the movie that she was in. I don't remember. I think it was The Women. And she had a role and she was like super excited. And she was like, it's going to be my breakout role. And then she ended up on the cutting room floor. Mm. And she went and she jumped to her death from the H of the Hollywood land sign. It was the Hollywood land sign at the time. And she is said to haunt Griffith Park. Um, Hikers and park rangers tell stories of encountering a woman dressed in 1930s fashions who wanders the area smelling of gardenias. Mm. I mean, it makes sense. Griffith Park's pretty close to the sign. Uh, by the way, I was just going to say, I looked up mm-hmm. where the Hollywood Tower now apartments are. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's basically right next to the gas station that I used to gas up at all the time. Oh, really? Do you see it's what like I like? Are you looking right at pictures there. of it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it looks like the Hollywood. It looks like the Tower of Terror. It, it totally does. I, I never paid, I, you know, I used to drive by this all the time. I mm-hmm. kind of remember the building, but I never paid attention to it. Because it's just like this area of town, there's all these old, weird, old buildings that have been turned into apartments. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. It totally does look like the Tower of Terror. It looks exactly like it. Virginia Rappe, whose death was at the center of Fatty Arbuckle's trial mm, and the downfall right. of his career, is said to haunt the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, where she's okay. buried. Yeah. She can apparently be heard sobbing mm. near her grave. And Lori Jacobson, who's an author, and she wrote Hollywood Haunted, a ghostly tour of Filmland, says that if you pass by Virginia's grave, step quickly because, quote, people who are murdered are seeking revenge. Mm. And last but certainly not least, I'm going to come back to the TripAdvisor Hotel, the hotel I mentioned (laughs) in that TripAdvisor review. And that review comes from the Weston Bonaventure Hotel in downtown LA. Okay, Um, yeah. It is a massive structure of steel, I'm sorry, of glass and concrete. Frederick Jameson described the hotel in 1991 by saying, quote, it does not want to be part of the city. Mm. Um, A lot of, it's like these like glass cylinders. A lot of uh, things say that it looks like it should be in um, Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. Like it looks very futuristic. It does not fit in with the rest of downtown L.A., like at all yeah um blah 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 blah. and apparently like inside the inside of the hotel is also fucking confusing there are all of these elevator banks but not all of them go to all of the floors Uh, and it's like not clearly labeled which ones do there's staircases but like you can't exactly see where the staircases go to there's a big wide open atrium in the middle but there's all of these blind spots Hmm. in it so it's just like this confusing like disorienting it's like the weird futuristic hotel version of the winchester mystery house a little bit (laughs) (laughs) um and it you know everybody was like it's absolutely not surprising at all like the hotel confuses guests so it's not like of course the ghosts are like stuck there how how do i get out yeah Yeah. can somebody point me towards the (laughs) fucking exit uh ghosts include the ghosts of Eli and Esther Reuven who were murdered during a drug deal gone bad. Mm. They apparently haunt the hotel along with the ghost of a little girl in a red coat. 
goat who wanders the tunnels underneath the parking Mm. garage. A little bit of like interesting LA history with this hotel. There was a trolley system in LA called the red car trolley line and the tunnels for that like for part of that line ran under where they wanted to put the Bonaventure. Mm. And so when they were building it, they collapsed those tunnels to create the foundation for the hotel. Oh, okay. And apparently that little girl still roams around the area. So like, I don't know she died in like a trolley accident. Yeah. Or what's she doing there? But she's there and she's there enough that people are like, yeah, the little girl in the red coat. Mm, okay. Yeah, no one knows no one knows who she is. With all the hopes and dreams brought into the city and unceremoniously dashed, the opulent spaces built in downtown LA, which were like, you know, these opulent spaces were built only to be abandoned when urban sprawl sent people to the suburbs. Right. All of this stuff, it's not a wonder actually that LA is full of ghosts. And mm-hmm. maybe many of them, like Elizabeth Short or Peg Entwistle, are trying to grab some of the fame that they longed for in life and only found in death. And that is just a little bit about LA's haunted hotels. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's like some of those, I knew some of that stuff. Um mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the the John Belushi in the hotel. Uh, the Chateau Marmont that's a pretty famous one mm-hmm. but uh yeah it's, I, I feel like LA really is one of those cities where it's just like anywhere you go something fucking crazy weird and dangerous probably happened at some point yeah and I think that's like it's it's so interesting too right because again like if you look at a city like New York to me it makes sense that New York is super haunted it's yeah or Boston like, right like you're talking about old cities you're talking about places that were like instrumental in the building of this country you're talking you're also talking about places where the structures a lot of structures from that time period still exist and you're talking like ghostland opens with a story i think that it was like in the 19th happened in like the 1930s and that there were like kids playing out in the street and they run in front of this brownstone and the woman who lives in the brownstone, I think her name is Margaret. She comes out and she's like, be quiet. And she's yelling at them and the kids stop and they look because this bitch died like months mm-hmm. or years before. And they right. were like, what? Why? <laughs> and she just like went inside and like closed the door. And, and uh, I think there's also stuff that were like, you know, cause that, that house is a museum now. Mm. So people will show up and they'll be greeted by somebody in old timey clothing who's like the museum isn't open today and they'll Mm. go home and call to be like well when is it open and the people from the museum will be like we are open and there isn't anybody in old timey clothing who works here (laughs) so like that stuff makes sense to me you know what i mean but for a city that is like relatively new yeah la is chock full of ghosts i mean it's a city of maybe somewhat less so now but historically it's a city of like really desperate people coming from all over the place and being horribly exploited Mm -hmm. often in violent ways Mm -hmm. um and it's also it's just this like it's a it's one of those places i mean i think like a lot of just sort of new mexico in general is like this and, and places like nevada and alaska are famous for this where it's like a lot of people end up there 
because they're running away from something else mm. so you get a lot of just like real weirdos and freaks like you know no judgment but like all kind of in this one city of you know 20 million people or whatever yeah so. and i think it's you know because there's been a lot of people i mean you you and me and my brother have talked about this about like what was going on in california in the 70s and 80s that there were like so many serial killers there right and i think it's kind of you know goes along with this thing too is that there were a lot of desperate people out there who mm-hmm. ended up in situations where they would be become people who were sadly not missed when they went mm-hmm. when they disappeared yeah well even some of the serial killers who ended up there were like you know people who wandered in because they'd kind of gotten chased out of other places like mm-hmm. like richard ramirez he was from el paso you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so it's, um, yeah it's just like it's like the a bad combination of people being kind of shoved into one place you know? right along with like a culture of like decadence and debauchery mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all of this stuff like yeah it, it was this perfect cauldron um i think for all of this stuff to happen additionally one of the hotels that i did not talk about in this which may, people might be like how can you have a story about haunted hotels in la and not talk about the cecil mm-hmm. um is just one again there is a ton of information out there about yeah. the cecil and this the cecil's bad it's it's not spooky it's it's bad like the stuff that happened there is very sad Mm. and like it's disturbing yeah and if you want to know more there is i mean we talked about it on on the podcast just watch the netflix documentary it's really interesting yes Um, super interesting they go into everything about it every paranormal show ghost hunters all of those have done an episode at the cecil and all that stuff but it is just it's 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 icky and and it's recent i mean the elisa lamb thing that's recent like that's real recent so yeah it's very recent so yeah so if you go and you know if you're in la and you're like i want to do this there are tons of ghost tours that you can go and take of -hmm. course as always you know be cool right (laughs) don't be a dick um (laughs) and do all that stuff uh and and you know and learn a little bit about the history as well also should i I do an should I do an update about the? I was I was gonna I was gonna ask you to do it. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, but what were you gonna say, and then I'll do it. Well, I was just gonna say like when we went out there, I took you on a little impromptu ghost tour of just some of the like fucked up places, and we were cool. Like we we weren't creepy about it, but we did go by the lot where Elizabeth Short was found. Yes, and of course we went to the place. I think you're gonna give the update on which we've talked about on the show. Yes, <laughs> so, go ahead. Okay, so back in the what. I think it was also Monster Machine, wasn't it? When you did the Los Feliz murder no, mansion, that's, isn't that's Choose Dolly? No, I... Choose Dolly was the Norwegian death metal and murder ballads. No, yeah, you're you're right, you're right, you're right, right, right. right. I think it's Monster Machine. I was thinking because those are two of my like darker stories, so I conflated them <laughs> together. Um, At no, any rate, right. whenever Monster it was Machine. that Scotty talked about the Los Feliz <laughs> murder mansion, uh, here's yeah. an update on it because I think in the story you had said that did you what what did you left on that the place had been bought or was I for think sale? I think at the time I think it had just been bought and people kind of didn't know what was going to happen to it, but like there were trucks and people were like moving all the crap out of it, right? Because and that's it was probably all, where it was at that point. right because it was still full of apparently some stuff from the family who had originally lived. Some there, stuff from the family and the storage unit it became a storage unit for the for the weirdos who bought it afterwards mm-hmm. so i was watching a show confession time i <laughs> love 
the trashy real estate shows on Netflix, <laughs> selling Sunset, selling Tampa, selling the OC. Mm-hmm. I cannot get enough of beautiful people wandering through beautiful homes and being absolutely petty. Like it is, <laughs> I love it. It's a comfort watch for me. Yeah. But so there was a, a new show that I had discovered, which I think is called Buying Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, one of the junior agents goes to this house and he's there with like one of the senior agents and some architects and blah, blah, blah. And the senior agent says something about like, oh man, like being in this house, even now still, like I just get so creeped out about what happened here. Mm-hmm. And the junior agent is like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. The senior agent goes, you don't know what happened here. And that's when I was like, oh my God, they're in the Los Feliz murder mansion. <laughs> yeah. And the house, I don't know exactly what is happening with the property, but there is an architect by the name of, I believe his name is Richard Landry. And he is completely renovating the Los Feliz murder mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go online. You can look it up on Zillow. Yeah, you, you sent it to see, me. Yeah, you can see the I I don't think they're actual pictures. I think they're architectural renderings of what the place will look like mm-hmm. after it is done. Um, but they're doing that. And apparently, also, this architect also did the renovation on the house where Sharon Tate died. So I'm like, <laughs> I want to talk to the yeah, like I want to <laughs> talk to this guy so bad and just be like, are you just like are you one of those people who's like, Hey man, the house didn't do anything wrong. We want to give it a new life. We want to not let it become an eyesore. You know, mm-hmm. we, we want to help property values increase in this area. And that's helped by not having a derelict home. Or right. is there, or like, is this guy a little bit of like a weirdo and like in the way <laughs> that we're weirdos? Yeah. I hope so. I like, hope so. I hope he's like our people. Yeah. 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 But it's being, it's like I said, the plants for it are gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I mean, it actually looks like a very like fun kind of like cool place to live now. Would you, yeah. would you, let's say that you could afford the like, I think it's like $6 million asking price. Uh-huh. If you could afford it, I don't even know why I'm asking this question. Yeah. Would you live in the Los Angeles murder? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Why are you even asking? Of course I would. <laughs> I mean, I would, if, if I could afford it, I would, I would have bought it like before it got restored or whatever. Cause if it was up to me being the creeper that I am, I would totally restore it and everything, but I would try to keep the, the architecture like kind of close to the original. You know, I... it looks like they're making a lot of, ch- and, and like, all the changes they're making, it's hard to like argue about that. It looks like you said, it looks gorgeous. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. I think that I would visit you in that house, but I probably would never stay after <laughs> after yeah. nightfall. Yeah. No, um, I mean, 100%. Like when I heard it was sold, I was kind of mad because I was like, had my dreams of getting rich and famous and buying it someday. So, <laughs> yeah. I just, I like, and that's what I'm trying to think. Like, if it was that, if it was the, you know, the house on Cielo Drive, like, I don't know if I'd want to live in that. Something about that, maybe because it is more like grotesque it, or something. There's something about the Sharon Tate house that feels and, like. Uh, yeah. It was so violent. Like those murders yeah. were so violent. They were right. so terrible. Um, yeah, that I really don't. I think I would be like, yeah. no, uh, not unless I could get like a fucking team of like curanderas to come and like do mm-hmm. a full limpia. Yeah. 
That and was, even then I would be like, mm. I will say one of my favorite albums of all time was recorded in that house. Which one? The Downward Spiral Nine Inch Nails. He rented it and turned it into his nothing studios for a while. And it was the house, right? It was the house. Yeah. I, I don't know if it had, I think it was probably had already been renovated at least to a degree at that point. Right. But that, I mean, that was 20, almost 30 years ago. It was 94. Probably 93 when he was recording it, so about 30 years ago. So I don't know what state it was in at the time. but Absolutely not. You, <laughs> listeners cannot see me. I'm just slowly he, shaking He claims, head. Trent Reznor claims, and I'm not sure I buy this, but he claims he was like, I wasn't recording it or renting it because of like the, the history mm-hmm. or whatever. He was just like, it was a place that was available, and that's why. And I think it was like already had part of it had been turned into a sound studio. So he was like, it was convenient. But it's like they called it Le Pig when they were recording there so i'm like come on dude like you you were you were being a bit of a creeper i mean i i don't even judge you because i just said i would 100 live in the los feliz murder mansion <laughs> i'm kind of like own up to it you know <laughs> like you're Trent Reznor, you're not in its snails like no one's gonna be mad that you are like a creeper about this no people aren't be gonna like, be mad tracks. i think maybe people yeah i think people might not be surprised <laughs> exactly they'll be like no yeah that, that makes sense <laughs> yeah of course you did I'm fucking right <laughs> Okay, that's all I got. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, good, good, good times. No, I lo- I love L.A. and it is one of the creepiest cities I've ever been to. But I'm actually my story. I'm going to talk about one of the other creepiest cities I've been to. So. Okay. But first off, so this isn't exactly a cold open, but I I do just want to point out. So in our very first episode, we talked about Mary Shelley. Yes. And some of the inspiration for the book Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things I didn't talk about was one of the major inspirations for Frankenstein was and actually something that was kind of an epidemic that was happening throughout the UK and the United States at this time you know sort of the late 1700s through kind of like the 1830s um and the epidemic was an epidemic of grave robbing so tonight I'm going to talk about grave robbing resurrection men quote-unquote and the grisly story of Burke and Hare from Edinburgh, Scotland um so here we go. Sources are Wikipedia, the story of Burke and Hare from historicuk.com, five things you didn't know about Burke and Hare from the University of Edinburgh website, and then the worlds of Burke and Hare, which is just like a general website, and it's www.burkeandhare.com. Okay. So let's talk about grave robbing. Okay. In the early 19th century, there were a bunch of like well-known anatomy instructors and quote-unquote, putting them in quotes because of the time period, doctors. Mm-hmm. quote unquote surgeons set up camp or like you know settled in edinburgh scotland and they were teaching at the medical school at the royal college of physicians and i think there's also i saw something it was the royal college of surgeons so i don't know if they're related but some of these doctors were you know pretty well known at the time a guy named alexander monroe another guy named john bell a guy named John Goodsir, and then a guy named Robert Knox. And let's put okay. a pin in Robert Knox because we're going to get back to him. Okay. Um, so at this time, the quote-unquote <laughs> study of anatomy was real haphazard. The thing is, yeah. like, kind of before the 18th century, mm-hmm. just the practice of medicine was not real legitimate. I, it was... <laughs> they were, like, I guess they were doing the best they could yeah but the their best was not very good well (laughs) and i think too one of the things about that is that there was oh when was it because i think i talked about it 
I think I talked about it a little bit in the hysteria episode that there was a moment where there were like healers and like Mm -hmm. medicine people. And then somewhere along the way, the church came in and then those two very, very different fields (laughs) came together. And Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of stuff that it was like, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. All having to do with religion, which to me, it seems like really brought medicine as a field to like a screeching halt. Right. <laughs> so at this point, we're talking the early, like late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, you know, we're past the age of enlightenment at this point, And, you know, people are trying to like be scientists about it, but they haven't figured it out yet. Right. Um, so at this point, the, the quote I saw was that medicine was not an exact science, which is like, ooh. And basically there are as many people died from like doctor's practices at the time as lived. Yeah. So of course the doctors were like, we need to like learn what this whole human body thing is all about, mm-hmm. which was the rise of anatomy as a, mm-hmm. as a field of legitimate study. Like I said, before kind of the early 1800s, it was just real haphazard. Like it kind of started, people started poking around in the human body kind of in the 1300s and like, what does this weird sack of stuff do? I don't know. Let's throw it away. You know? Yeah. At this point, people are really trying to, like, figure it out. So around this time in Germany, the first clear, accurate, and precise tome on anatomy was published by a guy named Samuel Thomas von Summering. It was published in German and then in Latin. And I did not write down the date, but I want to say it was like, I think it was like 1792 or something. Okay. Huh. In German and in Latin. Yeah. It had chapters on like the different bones and ligaments and muscles and the vascular system and the nervous system. And it was kind of the first book that was trying to like systematize all of this, Mm -hmm. you know? And then after that, a French scientist, a guy named Javier Bichat, although in, uh, I guess it's French, so maybe it's Xavier. I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but he published a book called Anatomie Generale. And it was kind of known for like, he made some like big leaps of logic about like, here, this is what I think this organ is for that people okay. hadn't figured out before. And then he was like, turned out to be right about a bunch of stuff. And then right, of course, on yeah. In the UK, there was an English anatomist and surgeon, a guy named Henry Gray, and he mm-hmm. would publish a landmark textbook called Henry Gray's Anatomy of the Human Body or Gray's Anatomy mm-hmm. um, in 1858. It is still in print. It's still used to this day. It's gone through 42 revisions. It's at the, it's on the 42nd edition, which was just published in March of 2020. It's still considered the standard reference book on human anatomy. Mm-hmm. It's often referred to as, quote, the doctor's Bible. Yeah, I always wanted to, like, look through it. because yeah. <laughs> I'm the, sure your dad had it. <laughs> yeah, the pictures. Mm-hmm. And it's like a big, big book. And it, mm-hmm. it's just... Like diagrams upon diagrams upon diagrams. I think it would be fascinating to take this 42nd edition and compare it to a first first? edition. Yes. Like, yeah, that would be crazy. Yeah, yeah. But so anyway, like this is where we were at with anatomy. And so you have people like Monroe, Bell, Goodsir, and Knox. You know, they were kind of right in the middle of the wave of this research. And they were turning Edinburgh into one of the main centers of study on human anatomy. So it became like a place that medical students were specifically going to learn about this. Okay. But here's the problem. (laughs) To study human anatomy, you need a lot of dead bodies. Like, a lot of dead bodies. Yeah. Before the Anatomy Act of 1832, which was the first time where it was allowed by law for people to voluntarily donate their bodies for research, Mm -hmm. 
Scottish law basically said that, well, if you want cadavers to dissect and study, the only ones that are suitable are the bodies of prisoners, suicide victims, and, quote, foundlings and orphans. Yeah, it's really sad. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just like, uh. And and that's basically the only place you could get bodies. Mm-hmm. As interest in the science of anatomy increased and medical schools like this Royal College of Physicians became more and more prestigious and were attracting more and more students, these schools were coming under pressure because they didn't have enough cadavers. Yeah. And so they were hit with shortages of dead bodies. This was exacerbated by the Judgment of Death Act of 1823, which saw the number of crimes deemed punishable by death drop dramatically. Um, (laughs) So it's like, that's a good thing. But the bad thing is less cadavers to carve up. Um, Uh Apparently a good sized, like regular sized medical school would require up to about 500 cadavers a year for their classes and research. Like That's a lot. Yeah. Particularly when you're only allowed to use prisoners. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's only so much you can do with one body. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And they don't. Like, Particularly back then, they don't last that long, you know. Yeah, they don't last. And... Yeah, they don't last a long time. Right. So the shortages led to the rise of what were called "quote resurrection men," mm. uh, which is a real nice, fancy way to say body snatcher. Okay, so but these... not in the invasion of the body snatcher no. type of way. And they're like literally they're snatching bodies. <laughs> yeah, let's get let's get let's get precise. Yeah, we're not talking pod people. We're talking grave robbers. <laughs> the resurrection men, who sometimes were medical students themselves, and this was like their side hustle. Mm-hmm. They would snatch the bodies out of fresh dug graves or or even morgues and funeral parlors before they were buried, and then they would turn around and sell the bodies to medical schools. A lot of times they worked in teams. Uh, mm-hmm. They would target recently dug graves. So methods of pulling a body out of a grave included digging a tunnel at the head of the coffin and breaking open the top, then using a hook or a rope to drag the body out. Come or on, sometimes guys. they would they would dig a hole like 20 feet away and dig a longer tunnel to get there for whatever reason. The thing is, it wasn't like a major crime to steal a body. It was a misdemeanor. Hmm. It was really? Not con- it was not considered a felony. You could not be imprisoned for stealing bodies. You'd just be fined. It was it was what like a... Heck? It was a small fine. What you could be in prison for is if you stole the jewelry and stuff that was on the body. So if I took the body but left the jewelry, that would be okay. So what these resurrection men would do is they'd pull the bodies out, strip them, like every stitch of clothes, every jewelry, pile them up, put them back in the coffin, and run off with the body. Um, And the medical schools, they're just like looking the other way. Right. They need bodies. A couple guys with a cart would show up and be like, hey, we found we found a body and, and the medical schools would be like, cool, cool, cool. Here's here's 10 pounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And just not, you know, not push the issue. And even the police basically knew what was going on. But everyone was kind of looking the other way because it was considered, quote, a necessary evil. Because, like, everyone's like, we need our doctors to know what the fuck they're doing. So, yeah, you know, they need to learn about fucking, you know, what's going on in the human body. Yeah. You, know, you can't just yeah. look at pictures in a book, you know? Yeah. So it became so prevalent that funerals at the time, family would post either relatives or friends to watch the body and tell burial. And then they would camp out near the grave for days after. 
to make sure no one came along. People started getting buried in iron coffins that couldn't be broken open. Sometimes mm. they would put these like iron framework bars over the grave itself. These were called mort safes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to the Greyfriars Churchyard in Edinburgh, apparently you can see a bunch of these mort safes still today. Um, wow because edinburgh was where they were doing like a lot of this and where i found out about this is when i went to edinburgh and i took i've told you about this i took this bus tour up to loch ness and uh and it was just like apparently if you do a tour anything touristy in scotland all the sites are just going to be like horrible things right that have happened in the past <laughs> so like the first thing the guy's pointing out is we drove by Greyfires churchyard and he was like that's where they used to steal the bodies for the medical school and by the way over there is where burke and Hare had the lodging house where they were murdering people mm, to sell okay. to the medical school okay. so let's get to burke and Hare. yeah spoiler alert <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> yeah this story is gonna have a lot of murder in it. great okay uh, great she we- says yeah. <laughs> As she immediately gets canceled. Right. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, you know, 200 some year old murders. So, you know. Yeah. Okay. So, but before we get to Burke and Hare, actually, let's talk a little bit more about this Robert Knox. Okay. So, like I said, he was an anatomist and doctor. He had worked as an army physician at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, and then eventually settled back in his hometown of Edinburgh and became a fellow at the Royal College of Surgeons. And there he became like a prominent lecturer on anatomy. Um, He would perform dissections twice a day in front of packed halls of students. Sometimes he would have like 400 pupils in the observation gallery watching as he's doing these dissections. He became the preeminent anatomist at the college and was seen as having like driven the study of anatomy forward and having raised the profile of it, like where people were like, yes, this is a worthy field of study. Right. So that's Robert Knox. William Burke was born in Ernie, Ireland, which is in Northern Ireland. I believe both he and um, Hare We're like Ulster Irish, like Royalist Irish from Northern Ireland. Okay. So he'd been born in Northern Ireland in 1792. He had been raised in a middle-class family. He and his brother Constantine had a comfortable upbringing, you know, nothing terrible going on there. Mm -hmm. They ended up joining the British Army as teens. Burke would serve in the Donegal Militia, which I believe was also in Northern Ireland. And that's where he met and would later marry a woman from County Mayo, Ireland, and would settle down. Mm. That marriage did not last uh, because he and his father-in-law had a fight over land ownership. Mm. And Burke was like, and like stormed out and abandoned his wife and children and moved to Scotland. He showed them. (laughs) Sure showed them. (laughs) What a a little bitch. A little bitch, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Once he got to Scotland, he worked as a laborer at first. He ended up uh, working on the Union Canal. He settled in the small village of Madison, and that's where he met and married his second wife, Helen McDougal, who okay. he called Nellie. And then after that, they moved to Tanner's Close, which I I was trying to figure out what Tanner's Close was. I think it's like a neighborhood in Edinburgh. But anyway, they moved there in 1827 where they became hawkers, which means they were like selling secondhand clothes. They're going door to door and being like, hey, you want this shirt? I guess that was a job. Where did it come from? And he's like, a dead body. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I actually didn't even look that up. He also worked as a cobbler for a while. There's This story is also full of a lot of like old timey jobs. 
come up a lot in the story. Dude. So we've got hawkers and cobblers, you know. Yeah. Similar to when I was doing the ghost map story mm-hmm. that I was like, this used to be somebody's fucking job. Yeah, exactly. Which was to like go through and like collect little bits of bone to like go back to the fucking apothecary and be like, make this medicine. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, geez, Louise. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah. A lot of like very like there's a lot of this stuff where I'm like, this is like a fucked up Dickens story. Like, right. Like cobblers and fucking chimney sweeps and shit. But um, so Burke, he was like a popular guy in this area. Like he was known as like a good natured guy very hard worker he would entertain his customers like he would show up when he's selling the secondhand clothes he would like do a little song and dance with them on their front porch you know like which to me seems insufferable but apparently people really liked it i don't know like a literal song and dance like a literal song and dance i thought you were being cheeky a literal no. song and dance. no he would sing and he would dance to try and sell you a shirt i would shoot someone <laughs> if they came to my get off of my fucking property <laughs> That is grounds for immediate stand your ground law. I know. Talking about fucking castle doctrine. <laughs> yeah, no, he would show up and do like an actual song and dance. <laughs> Absolute hard, hard pass. <laughs> so, but that, but that was Burke. He was also known as a very pious religious man. He was raised Catholic, but. He started going to these like Presbyterian church meetings and he was always seen with a Bible in hand. William Hare. So he was born in Northern Ireland. Um, his birth year, like there's not much known about William Hare. It sounds like, like his birth year is totally unknown when he was arrested in 1828 after all the shit went down. Mm-hmm. He told them he was 21 years old which seems unlikely. Okay. Um, The closest anyone has been able to narrow it down is that he was born sometime between 1792 and 1804, which is a pretty big... (laughs) Yeah, 12 years that we're looking at? Okay. (laughs) And also, nothing's really known of his, like, early life. Like, they don't even know exactly where he was born. There's, like, three different counties in Ireland he might have been born in. But like Burke... He had moved to Scotland, worked as a laborer, worked on the Union Canal, and then ended up in Edinburgh in the 1820s. And once there, he worked as a coal man's assistant, again, old-timey job, and then lodged in like a lodging house, like a rooming house, owned by a guy named Logue and his wife, whose name was Margaret Laird. And this is weird, because I don't know what happened to Logue, but at a certain point, Margaret and William Hare... Like they're together, so that seems sketchy. And okay. I couldn't, I couldn't really find anything on this low guy. So I'm like, did they fucking murder him too? <laughs> Probably. Probably. But anyway, he basically took over this lodging house, okay. um, like this inn or lodging house, whatever rooming house, and that's uh, became the infamous rooming house where all the shit happened. Okay. So uh, an historian named Brian Bailey described hair as. A, in his book, Birkin Hare, The Year of the Ghouls, he described Hare as, quote, illiterate and uncouth, a lean, quarrelsome, violent, and amoral character with the scars from old wounds about his head and brow. Mm. Um, so it's it's just, it's like such an interesting pair because you've got William Burke, who's like this popular cobbler who dances on your porch. Yeah. Um, and carries a Bible everywhere he goes. And then you've got this William Hare guy who's like super mysterious and like 
mean and like fights everybody and like, yeah and then margaret is described in the same book as a quote hard featured and debauched virago <laughs> and <laughs> apparently virago means a domineering or bad-tempered woman so jeez rude <laughs> yeah Although, for real as you get into the story it's like fair probably okay okay all right yeah let me not let me not prejudge Right. So in 1827, Burke and his wife, Helen, uh, so Burke is the quote, nice one. They went to a place called Pinnacook, which I think is like a little village up in Midlothian to work like the harvest. I think people would like for extra money, you go out into the country and you'd like work the harvest and get some money and go back to the city. While there, they met William Hare and Burke and Hare became like super tight friends and so when they all returned to Edinburgh, burke and his wife moved into the lodging house in tanner square okay so let's get to the murders let's get um, to it so on november 29th 1827 an elderly lodger at hare's lodging house a guy named old donald he died of dropsy which is i guess the buildup of fluid and body tissue often caused by heart or liver failure so, you know, I mean, yeah. he was an old guy. He probably had heart problems or whatever. Yeah. And he he died. He, like, didn't kill him. He died of natural causes. Okay. But the thing is, he owed four pounds in back rent to hair. And I looked it up. Four pounds uh, back then was, like, 327 pounds today. So, yeah. Mm, compared fair. to the dollar in this economy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, Hare was pretty pissed off about this. And mm-hmm. he was bitching about it to Burke. And Burke was like, well, you know what I've heard? Is that you can't, like, there's no one around to claim old Donald. Like, you didn't have any family or anything. He's like, what I've heard is that you can take him to the medical school and they'll buy him off of you. And Hare was like, let's fucking do it. Yeah. But this is illegal because he's not, uh, you know, whatever, like, Mm-hmm. executed prisoner right. and he's, he's not, not a foundling like, not a foundling right so what they did is they hired a carpenter to build a cheap coffin that they had in the lodging house they put old donald in it they were like well we'll just keep him here until it's time to bury him and then after everyone left they cracked open the fucking coffin took his body out hid it under the bed and then filled the coffin with bark so that it still had weight to it and like the people came, they obviously they just took the coffin, threw him in a pauper's grave, and we're done with it. Uh, Meanwhile, we've got this body under the bed. They take it over to Edinburgh University, uh, looking for someone to buy it. They were looking for Alexander Monroe, who apparently I think was like the biggest name, like anatomist at the mm-hmm. time. But they weren't able to find him. So they were asking around. Like, I just imagine this weekend at Bernie's thing where they're just like hauling this corpse <laughs> around. Like, uh, can you tell us how to find Alexander Monroe? Sidebar, I fucking love Weekend at Bernie's. It's a great movie. It is <laughs> so such good. a great I haven't movie. seen it in a while, but I that was one that I used to watch all the time. I watched it at some point during what is happening with my lighting right now. I have, <laughs> I've watched it during the pandemic and I was like, this movie holds up. It is so stupid and so <laughs> ridiculous. It is so, when they take him out and he's all rigged up to like wave <laughs> off of the like, Oh my yeah. God. And it's uh, what is it? Is it Jonathan Silverman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Andrew McCarthy. That's right. Yeah. Just at like peak. Right. Yeah, this is like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, like. peak, like late 80s soft boy. Like just, 
chef's kiss to oh, that man. movie. It is Yeah, I'm so going to have to watch good. it again. Yeah, everything everything about it is his house is like <laughs> fantastic. It's all like white and statues and leather. Yeah. And right. all the girls have like permed hair and mm-hmm. the bikini bottoms that are like this long because they, they're all high-waisted. <laughs> right. It's so good. It's so, I'm, so good. I'm going to I'm gonna watch that tonight. Yes, watch uh. it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, meanwhile, uh, Burke okay, and Hare yes. are just weakened at Bernie's you know they're just doing that all over fucking edinburgh university yeah. and they talk to some students um and the students are like yeah uh professor monroe he's not around but you could take him over to robert knox professor knox they're like okay cool so they go over to robert knox and robert knox had all these students working as like um assistants and they're like negotiating with the students you know haggling over the price of the fucking corpse and then finally, like Robert Knox is like, no, 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 here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you seven pounds. So this went four pounds for hair. Three pound profit. Three, yeah. Three for Burke, which is what would have been 246 pounds today. Like, you know, solid day's work. Uh, yeah. uh, and I think this is when the ding, ding, ding starts to go off in their head. Because as they're leaving, one of Knox's assistants calls out to them and says that they, quote, would be glad to see them again when they had another body to dispose of. It's all that guy's fault. Yeah, it was bad news. Yeah. Um. So commence the murdering. So it's not clear in what order the murders happened, at least at first, because after they were caught, they were giving all sorts of contradictory confessions and state, particularly Burke. I think Burke was the one who, who was just like talking to everybody. Well, um, gave an interview. And, yeah, yeah, song and dance man. You know. <laughs> exactly. Can't shut him um, up. Right. <laughs> he even gave an interview to the Edinburgh Current newspaper, but it, it was all like super contradictory. So no one really knows what happened. Okay. It seems like the first murder was probably a guy named Joseph, who is a miller. It could also have been a salt seller named Abigail Simpson. Okay. Again, Dickens' jobs here. Right. Um, but let's go with the idea that it was Joseph because. A historian named Lisa Rosner, she thinks it was Joseph. She says it was because his manner of death was slightly different. So it's like they hadn't figured out the best way to do it yet. Joseph was smothered with a pillow where the later ones were suffocated with like a hand and over the nose and mouth. Ooh, okay. Um, and then uh, the novelist Walter Scott, who sounds like he was a real creeper like us, was super into true crime. Uh, he looked he looked into the story at the time. He He did a lot of research on the case. And he said he thought part of their reason for killing Joseph was that he had actually, he was another like older guy, I think. Mm. And he developed a fever while lodging at Hare's lodging house and became delirious. And I think it was like making a lot of noise. And Margaret, Hare's wife, the... <laughs> the ill-tempered bad-tempered woman or whatever she was worried that if it became known that they had an infectious person lodging with them it would be bad for business so they're like okay well let's uh let's get uh my buddy william burke up here and let's just kill the fuck out of this guy so uh he gets burke they go up they they get joseph nice and drunk on whiskey i think they're telling him like this will help you feel better blah 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 and then hair uh, smothered him with a pillow while Burke lay across his body. Oh my God. To keep him from like getting up. Um, so this prevented Joseph from making any noise because he couldn't move. It also presented his chest or prevented his chest from expanding. So in case the smothering wasn't totally working, this was like extra insurance. And this Lisa Rosner, she says it would have been practically undetectable until the era of modern forensics. Yeah. Um, it would have just looked like he died of a fever. 
Yeah. So they took the body to Knox again. And he was like, cool, cool, cool. Here's 10 pounds. So this would have been about 842 pounds by today's standards. Okay. They've stumbled on a good racket. Yeah. Lucrative. Yeah. So the next victim was probably the salt seller, this woman named Abigail Simpson. Mm. Um, But it could have been a male lodger from Cheshire. So the male lodger who I couldn't find his name anywhere. I think some of the victims, like they don't really know who they were. Yeah. Um, But he was apparently a traveling match and Tinder salesman. Because I guess that was a job. Again, these jobs. (laughs) Um, And he was lodging at Harris while he was like moving through Edinburgh, selling matches and Tinder. (laughs) And while there, he also got sick. And again, Margaret's like, this is bad for business. And so Hare is like, get Burke up here. And they did the same thing. And I think this is the first time they did the like hands over the nose and mouth. Uh, okay um and then abigail simpson she was an elderly pensioner she lived in the nearby village of gilmerton and she supplemented her pension by coming into edinburgh and selling salt i think she would go like door to door selling Mm -hmm. salt so on february 12 1828 this is the only exact date that burke was able to give in his confessions margaret invited her over to the lodging house to hang out and then once she was in there margaret made sure to get her real drunk on whiskey too drunk for her to like head back to gilmerton eventually abigail just like passed out and so when william Hare got home later that afternoon margaret's like you know check out what i got Mm -hmm. he grabbed a stiff mattress cover and just like put it over her face to suffocate her and by that night she was dead um and then they put her in body in a tea chest in a tea chest i was like in a tea in a what (laughs) (laughs) in a tea chest um, hauled her off to the fucking medical school and sold her to Knox. Again, got the got 10 pounds. So and is this just like a don't ask, don't tell type of thing where they're just mm-hmm. like, thanks for the body? Yeah, and I'll get to that. Okay, okay. Uh, because it seems pretty clear to me that I think Knox knew what was up mm. at a certain point. So apparently, when they brought Abigail's body, Burke said that quote, Dr. Knox approved of it being so fresh, but he did not ask any questions. So there you go. Okay. He's working with like possible deniability. Exactly. Yeah. In legal terms. Right. <laughs> Since um, we are a legal podcast. Right. <laughs> with all our vast wealth of 1700 Scottish law <laughs> or 1800 Scottish law. <laughs> oh my God. So this is all like, I mean, this is between, I think, January. In March, they've or now they've killed three people. In early April, Burke is just out and about, and he meets a woman named Mary Patterson and her friend Janet Brown. Now, according to this historic UK.com, they were sex workers. I don't mm-hmm. know. This is the only place I saw this. Okay. Um, and it seems like historic UK.com really liked to label these people sex workers. So, you know, great. Yeah. But yeah. he meets Mary Patterson and Janet Brown. They're hanging out. He buys them alcohol. He invites them back to Harris house for breakfast, but they don't actually make it to Harris house. They end up at Burke's brother, Constantine's house. Okay. Constantine's not involved in any of this. He's, he's out of work, I think. Right. Um, but they're just there hanging out. They're just downing this whiskey. And eventually Mary Patterson just falls asleep at the table. Burke is still hanging out with Janet Brown when his wife, Helen, comes over discovers them and freaks out and i was like you're having an affair you're sleeping with her she picks up a glass and throws it at brown it shatters on her face and like cuts her above the eye and brown is like janet brown she's like i didn't know he was married i'm sorry i'm sorry and she like takes off 
but she leaves her friend. Uh. So Helen took off and she went to get William Hare and Margaret. So now William Hare and Margaret come back with Helen. Burke and Hare, they locked their wives out of the room and they murdered the still sleeping Mary. Mm. that later that afternoon they took her body to knox and another tea chest and this time they're paid eight pounds so didn't make quite as much mm. um this time one of knox's assistants so i think they're trying to be like what's going on here mm-hmm. they asked where they got the body and burke told them that mary had drunk herself to death at like a pub down in tanner's close and that they happened along right after she died and bought the body from, quote, an old woman in the Cannon Gate, which is, I think, another neighborhood. Okay. Um. So Knox, Robert Knox, the anatomist, was, quote, delighted with the body. He stored her in a tub of whiskey for three months before finally dissecting her. A tub of whiskey. Yeah. I wonder what happened to that vintage. Oh, he did, he would just go in there and drink. take a little nip every now yeah. and then. <laughs> mm. <Ooh>. <laughs> but after they killed her and sold her janet brown comes back and she's like what happened to mary and burke and Hare, they're like i don't know she ran off to glasgow with a traveling salesman because that's with a traveling match (laughs) and and tinder tinder salesman (laughs) yeah so poor mary patterson that was what happened to her uh later in the spring or early summer they killed a quote stout old woman named mrs haldane i mean Uh, rude that they needed to throw in that description of her yeah i I think that was uh (laughs) burke's that was burke's description of her she was also lodging at Hare's moving house she got drunk and fell asleep in the horse stable so burke and Hare murdered her and sold her to Knox. then a few months later her daughter coincidentally came to stay with them and they killed her too again HistoricUK.com is calling both women sex workers. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that, I think I made the exact same face. Yeah, I feel like that needs a lot of side eye. Mm-hmm. I feel like this thing is like every woman was a sex worker. That's, that was kind of the impression I was getting. I'm like, okay. are you making assumptions? Or, yeah. I'm like, I'm going to need you to cite some evidence. Yeah. They no. did. They super didn't. Okay. So when they took Mary and I think the daughter that they killed, to Knox, the students recognize them. And so at this point, gossip is starting to circulate amongst the students. They're like, these motherfuckers are like murdering people. Like, that's what's oh, happening. Oh, shit. Okay. But everyone was like, ah, but this is like, this is too good. Like, we, we need the bodies. So yeah. no one, no one spoke up. In May of 1828, another old woman, again, don't have a name for her. She was lodging there. She got murdered this time by Burke. Her wasn't even there this time. Okay. So they're just like killing everybody. That's coming through. After that, a quote cinder gatherer named Effie was killed. That is Yet absolutely another. a fake job. <laughs> right? What do you do? I'm a cinder, cinder gatherer. gatherer. Yeah. Well, she, Burke knew her because she used to go around selling scraps of leather. And so he would buy leather off of her when he was a cobbler to make shoes. So he actually knew her. I think ran into her on the street, was like, hey, why don't you come back? to my friend's lodging house and let's get drunk seems like everyone was just like big fucking i mean i guess scotland i guess um yeah so everyone's drinking whiskey he gets her back gets her drunk on whiskey i think she passes out he and hair murder her another unnamed victim was being helped back to her home by a local constable she had gotten so drunk in a local pub that she could barely stand up so this local constable was like 
walking her home. Burke comes along and is like, oh, I know her. Why don't you let me take her off your, your hands? Like you're, you know, you, you've got to go about your cop, your police officer business, you know, let mm-hmm. me help you out. And the constable's like, cool, cool, cool. I don't want to deal with this drunk Thank lady. Thank God. Right. <laughs> now I don't have to do my fucking job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Burke takes her, does not take her home. Takes her back to the lodging house, and he and Hare murdered her. In June, they killed two more lodgers. This one's really sad. A, quote, old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson. HistoricUK.com says that the boy was blind. Hmm. I think he was, like, a little boy. Like, sounds like he was a child. Uh, So while he was out sitting by the fire, they took the old lady into one of the bedrooms. They killed her. Mm -hmm. And then they went back out, picked up the boy, carried him into the room, and did the same thing to him. Burke later expressed remorse for that murder and said it was the one that disturbed him the most. Um, Mm. Yeah, exactly. They received eight pounds for each of those bodies. In late June of 1828, Burke and his wife went to Falkirk to visit her father. Uh, When they returned, they saw that William Hare was like wearing all new clothes. And like beforehand, I think before they left, they knew that Hare was like, he was like on his last dime and he was bitching to Burke. He was like, I I don't, I mean, I can't like buy food. Like, what am I going to do? And Burke's like, just hold tight. Well, I don't know. Get back to murdering when I'm back in the town or whatever. Look, I need a break. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I can't Um, murder today. Right. So they get back and all of a sudden they see Hare is like wearing all new clothes. And they're like, you murdered someone while we were gone, right? And Hare's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't murder anyone. And Burke's like, I don't. I think you. I think you were up to the murdering. So he went and talked to this Knox, and Knox was like, oh yeah, Hare came by. He sold me a woman for eight, eight pounds, a woman's body. So this led to a big fight between the two, and they ended up getting like in a punching match, like sort of punching each other out. And I'm sure no. the fight was just about like you know, you owe me four pounds or whatever, you know, right. We, um, you said we we said we wouldn't murder without each other. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's literally what it was. <laughs> so Burke and his wife leave in a huff, and they go move into his cousin's home two streets away. And I forgot to write down the cousin's name. He's not that important, but he does come up again. Okay. Um. So it, the, his cousin also owned a lodging house like two streets over. So they go move in with him. Mm-hmm. Um. But Burke and Hare ultimately like they make up. And and so Burke and his wife are still living with the cousin, but he and William Hare, they're they're like they repair their friendship. They're still friends, and of course they get back to get back to all the murdering. So in late September, a washerwoman named Mrs. Osler came by to like use their facility to do her laundry. And they're like, cool, 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 come on in. Murdered her. So at this point, they're just like killing everybody that yeah. like comes across. And it's- it's a lot of women, right? Like I'm trying to keep a mental tally. It's, it's a lot of women, right? It's mostly women. Yeah. Okay. And and old men. Okay. And I think it's probably because they're targeting who they think is the most vulnerable. Right. The easiest. Right. This is fucked up. In early October, one of Helen's relatives, I think a cousin named Ann Dougal comes to visit. They murdered her and sold her for 10 pounds. Uh. And around this time, Hare's wife, Margaret, starts saying, well, you should kill Helen, Burke's wife. Because she's a, quote, Scotch woman and we can't trust her. And Burke was like, yeah, (laughs) Burke's like, no, no, we're not going to kill kill my wife. Um, (laughs) Do you think he was like, I mean, I'm guessing he thought uh, about it. No, no, let's 
let's press pause on that. Yeah, I don't think there was a lot of nobility to this guy to be like, no, yeah. he's the love of my life. I think he was just like, I, my guess is probably along the lines of like, people will wonder where my wife went. So that's a yeah. Bad. Not that, like, they're going to wonder where my wife's cousin went, but Mm -hmm. whatever. Okay, so now we're down to the last two victims. Okay. In late October, they targeted an 18-year-old mentally disabled homeless man named James Wilson. Wilson was known in the neighborhood. People, he was known to be this, like, kind of harmless sort of people kind of liked him. He was, you know, he he survived by begging. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew him as, quote, daft Jamie. Well, they targeted him. Hare lured him into the lodging house with whiskey, and he sent Margaret, his wife, to go get Burke. At that point, they led Jamie into a bedroom, and Margaret locked the door behind them, I think, so no one else could, like, interrupt them. And then she pushed the key under the door so that Hare would be able to get out. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out Jamie wasn't a real big drinker. He, he was a big fan of snuff, like tobacco. Uh-huh. But he wasn't, he wasn't a big drinker, so they weren't able to get him as drunk as the other victims. So he tried to fight them off, but they ultimately were able to overpower him and they killed him. He had a snuff box on him, so Burke kept the snuff box. Hare kept the spoon that went with the snuff box. So they took the body to Knox. Several of the students were like, we know him. That's Daph Jamie. Ugh. Like, we 100% know who this guy is. Yeah. And Knox, the anatomist, was like, no, no, no. There's no way you, he, he can't be anyone you know. But they're like, no, that's Daft Jamie. So now word is really spreading. Like, these motherfuckers are killing everybody. Yeah. And Knox is like, mm, okay. So he I guess he had, like, a bunch of bodies stored. And he would, like, get to them kind of in the order that he received them mm-hmm. to dissect them. Well, as word is spreading about Jamie and, and how Jamie had gone missing, like, you know, his students were like, that's Jamie. He's like, no, it's not. And then word gets out. They're like, oh, you know, Jamie, the you know daft Jamie, he's gone missing. No one's seen him. So Knox changes the order of his dissection schedule, uh, gets to Jamie next, and he starts by cutting off his head and his feet, which were deformed and identifiable. So fucking Robert Knox knew what was going on. Yeah. He 100% yeah. knew what was happening. There's no way he didn't. Finally, on October 31st, they killed a middle-aged Irish woman named Marjorie Campbell Dougherty. So this is like, this is kind of a crazy story. So Burke met her, um, I think, again, just out and about in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see it, but I'm sure historicuk.com is going to call her a sex worker. Sure. But he meets her and he's like, oh, my mother was a Dougherty, also from Ireland. Totally lying. Like 100% like she's like, Oh, I wonder if we're cousins. And so this opens up, like, you know, they start getting friendly. They start drinking together. And he's like, why don't we go back to my cousin's house? And they go back to his cousin's house. His cousin's not there. His cousin's gone. You know, this is the, the, the lodging house that they're staying at, but Helen is there. His wife is there. So they start drinking with Helen. Eventually Burke is like, Oh, I need to go get more whiskey. Um, so he leaves darkly with his wife instead of going to get more whiskey. Of course he went and got hair. Well, it just so happened the two other people are staying in the lot in the rooming house at the time. A couple named Anne and James Gray. This is like real inconvenient <laughs> to have these mm-hmm. other people here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Burke was like, "Oh, hey, this is my cousin from Ireland. We're gonna like be partying with her all night. We're probably gonna be making noise. Here's some money. Why don't you go stay at my buddy Hare's uh, lodging house? It's just a couple streets over. Because they're just like, get these fuckers out of here." 
Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like, cool, cool. They leave. But later that night, they came back just like they forgot a couple things. So they came back in to get some things from the room and they see Burke, Hare, Margaret, Helen, and this um, Marjorie Doherty all just in the living room getting drunk. They're dancing. They're laughing and having a great old time. At some point, they got everyone's super drunk. Burke and Hare get into a fist fight because <laughs> why, why not? <laughs> But I, I think it was like they get in a fist fight, then they're like, "Ah, you know, we're." I don't know why I'm turning into pirates, but uh, <laughs> they they still managed to murder Doherty, and they hid her in a pile of straw at the foot of the bed that the in the Gray's room. And then they like I think they're all just super fucking drunk, so they all pass out. The Gray's come back the next morning, and Anne Gray got suspicious because she's going in the room, and Burke's like, "No, no, 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 stay away from the bed. Like you won't let her get close to the bed." And she's like, something's up here. Yeah. At some point, everyone else leaves. And I don't know if they forgot they hid the dead body in the pile of straw. I don't know what's going on. Okay. The Greys are still in the house. Everyone else is gone. And so Anne Gray is like, I'm going like, to see what's in this pile of straw. And of course, they find Marjorie Doherty's body. So they're running out to tell the police. And who's coming through the front door? It's Helen. Like and she Helen. Re- yeah, she realizes, oh, shit, they found the body. They're going to go tell the police. Well, she's not in a position to, like, murder two people. Right. So she tries to bribe them. She's like, I'll give you 10, we'll give you 10 pounds a week if you don't go to the police. Now, I'm sure they didn't have 10 pounds a week to give these yeah. people. I'm sure she was just like, hold them off until my husband and hair get here and then murder. Probably. And then we'll murder these people, too. Right. There we go. Well, the Greys are like, <laughs> go fuck yourself. And they went to the cops. Meanwhile, Burke and Hare are like, let's get this fucking body out of here. So they get her over to Knox's. They sell her. As they're over there selling the body to Knox, the cops are searching the lodging house. And again, this is the, the cousin's lodging house. This isn't Hare's. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found her bloodstained clothes hidden under the bed. But the, of course, they don't find her body. So they can't prove that she's dead or, you know. But they're like, this is real. This is real bad. So when Burke and Hare get back, they question Burke and his wife who are claiming like, I don't know. She left. She left the house. We we haven't seen her since she left, but they're giving different times that she left. So the police are like, no, 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 we're, we're not letting you. And so they're holding them for questioning. Meanwhile, they retrace their steps. They make their way to Knox in his dissecting room. And there they find Marjorie Doherty's Doherty's body. James Gray identifies her as the woman who he had seen partying with them the night before. So now it's like, it's pretty clear what the fuck happened. So William Hare and Margaret are arrested the next day. Um, they also arrested Burke's cousin, who I forgot to write down his name. He was ultimately exonerated. He did, he had no idea what was going on. Right. Like he wasn't part of it, or at least it appears he wasn't part of it. They released him, and then that that's that's it for him. He's out of the story. They kept all four suspects apart from each other. Each of them gave all sorts of conflicting statements. So they're like, these motherfuckers are lying like crazy. After further examining Doherty's body, the police and the forensic investigators determined she probably died of suffocation mm-hmm. they also interrogated robert knox and he told them he's like i don't know they just kept finding bodies and bringing them by i will you know and so he admits that he was buying the bodies off of them but what he said was that they 
he was like, well, what they told me is that they would simply like watch all the poor lodging houses in Tanner's close. And when someone would die of drinking to death or, you know, someone would die in their bed, they would be told right away. They would pay a little bit of money to take the body to then sell to me. And it was just their kind of racket that they had, but they're not killing people. No, mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. One of the forensic specialists they had, who I think was a medical doctor, uh, who they had working with the police, a guy named Robert Christison. He said that not, he thought that Knox was quote, deficient in principle and heart, but he, he, they weren't able to find any evidence that he broke in a law. So mm. he was never charged with anything. Yeah. Well, as police are investigating, word is spreading about the case. And of course, the newspapers get a hold of it. And they're publishing these like lurid, gory, wildly inaccurate stories. And it gets to the point where everyone's just like, anyone who has ever gone missing in Tanner's Close must be a victim of Birkenhair. Mm. But Janet Brown, she's seeing all this in the news. She's like, my friend was with these people and she vanished. And she ran off to Glasgow with a fucking traveling salesman, quote unquote. So she goes to the police. She tells their story. The police had found all these like bits of clothing and like stuff that clearly didn't belong to either Burke or Hare, like in the scenes. Mm-hmm. So they're showing all the stuff to Janet Brown. And she's like, yeah, that's that's Mary's clothing. So they're able to find some of her clothes there. And then a local baker told police that he had seen Burke's nephew going around wearing Jamie Wilson's trousers. Jamie being Mm -hmm. daft jamie so at this point they're like we're pretty sure they've killed at least three people they know that they killed marjorie doherty and they're pretty sure about mary patterson and jamie wilson Mm -hmm. so they issue another warrant against them this time for jamie's murder so sir william ray was the lord advocate and prosecutor he was like we don't really have enough evidence like they could get off so he's like we need to pick one of them to turn them against the others So they go to Hare, and they offered him total immunity from prosecution if he would testify about Doherty's murder and implicate the others. But the thing was, legally, he's not allowed to implicate his wife. So this means both Hare and Margaret are like, they skate. Yeah. Burke and McDougal, his wife, Helen McDougal, they're charged with the murders of Mary Patterson, James Wilson, and Mrs. Doherty. Not Like I said, Knox faced no charges, but public opinion had turned wildly against him. A lot of people mm. in Edinburgh thought he was the, quote, sinister ringmaster behind the case. And that mm. his reputation was basically destroyed. The case became so well known that it actually spawned a new word. The word burking was coined to describe killing someone by smothering. Okay. And then a new rhyme was circulating all throughout Edinburgh. So I'm going to read, I'm not going to be able to do the fucking accent. But okay. it's, up the close and doon the stair, butt and bin with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, knocks the boy that buys the beef. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so Burke and McDougal, they pled not guilty to the murders. Ultimately, on Christmas Day, Burke was found guilty of Doherty's murder. But Helen, his wife, was acquitted. Her charge was deemed, quote, not proven. So again, she gets off scot-free. The only person punished was William Burke. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. So he was sentenced to death. As he was passing the sentence, the judge said, quote, your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized. And I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. So Helen McDougal, she was released. She went home. Then she went out to get some whiskey. She was recognized in the street. A mob formed around her. She had to flee into a police station for protection. 
Uh-huh. The mob then laid siege to the police station, so she had to escape through a back window. She ultimately made it out of Edinburgh, and no one knows what happened to her. <sighs> she vanished. She vanishes from history. Okay. On January 3rd, 1829, Burke made a more detailed confession on the advice of both a Catholic priest and a Presbyterian minister. Margaret, Hare's wife, she's released from prison on January 19th. She immediately went to Glasgow to find passage back to Ireland. Again, nobody knows what happened to her after that. And then Hare was released on February 5th. He was sent in disguise to Dumfries, which is a town in Scotland. Mm -hmm. But on the way there, he was recognized. Uh, A mob formed in Dumfries and the police had to like whisk him away. So they ended up just taking him to a road, dropping him off. And they were like, walk to England. And he was like, okay. And starts walking to England. And nobody knows what happened to him. So all of them vanished without a trace. I like to think they were murdered, <laughs> hunted down and murdered by angry vigilantes, but who knows? I, I think it's likely, actually, that Hare was. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, fucking go. Um, yeah. So William Burke was hanged on January 28th in front of a crowd of 25,000 people. 25,000 people? people. Yep. It was so, like, people were so desperate to watch him get killed that all the tenements that were around the scaffold that had views of it were selling like you can come and watch from our window for like exorbitant amounts of money. And then after he was hanged, his corpse was publicly dissected by professor Monroe in the anatomy theater of Edinburgh university. A near right ensued from students trying to get in to watch the dissection. After his dissection, his skeleton was given to the anatomical museum, his death mask and a notebook bound with his skin is also on display at the Surgeon's Hall Museum, right? I think I made that exact face when I read that. At the end of the dissection, Professor Monroe dipped his quill pen in Burke's blood and wrote, quote, This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. And that is the story of Burke and Hare. It's fucking morbid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, man. Spooky season. Spooky season. Yeah. And I, I do have to say, I've been to Edinburgh. It's fucking rad. I loved Edinburgh. But it's a spooky fucking city. Like, it's yeah. one of those places you walk around and you're like, oh, yeah, this place is haunted. Right. I mean, they've got the castle up on the hill with the dungeons and everything. And it's a big tourist attraction now. But you, even up there, you go up there and you're like, yeah, you feel the vibes. Yeah, I feel like a lot of Europe is just super haunted. It's just mm-hmm. been, people have been there for a really long time. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, well, and doing like not great things to each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I said, everything on this tour of Scotland, all the way up into the Highlands, was just the tour guide pointing out the window and being, yeah, that's where one massacre happened. Right. Here's where another massacre happened. Yeah. Oh, there's the castle where the fucking McDonald clan killed the Campbells or whatever. Right. You know, and then of course I get to Loch Ness and it's like looking for the monster. It was a a great day. (laughs) I had a good time. (laughs) It was a great spooky day. Yeah. But yeah. And of uh, course, yeah, that's when I first heard about Birkenhair was on that trip. So, wow. There wow. you go. Well done. Yeah. 
All right. That's all we've got. We had to take a huge pause for my dog, um, <laughs> but hopefully the episode won't be too. I don't think the episode's going to be very long because no. we took a massive pause right? <laughs> um, for my dog to get her, her shit figured out. Um, <laughs> okay. It, did. it was like a 20 minute pause. <laughs> it was a really long pause. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of what's going on. By the time this episode comes out, the election will be over. Um, uh-huh. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I hope, I hope everybody voted. Yeah. I mean, I'd say like, go vote. It's a, it's too late. Yeah. It's too late by the time this is hitting your ear holes. So we hope you voted. Um, if you didn't vote, you can't listen to this podcast anymore. Yeah. You're banned. You're banned. You're, you're exiled. <laughs> yeah. Lifetime ban from the weirdest thing podcast. Other than that, we'll see what happens. We've got holidays coming up. So things maybe will get a little funky. Yeah, well, well, I think for our next couple weeks, we probably will have episodes. But as we get into like Thanksgiving and stuff, definitely. Yeah, we're going to see. Um, yeah. We may have some breaks. We may have some breaks in there. But yeah, we're yeah. not going away for good. No, never. Well, I shouldn't say never. <laughs> That's stupid. Not, not um, in the immediate future. <laughs> not in the immediate future. Um, all right. Other than that, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>